You know, it's funny in that passage from Pascal that we read in our first episode, he's, he's listing some of the things that people trust in and he includes cabbages. <laughs> Don't ask me. He's just making this long laundry list of things that people put their hope in. And ca- apparently cabbages is one that came to his mind. But anyway, Pascal, okay. wait, Pascal put hope in cabbages. That's not Pascal's law, man. That's Cole's law. Um, okay, we got How do you do it? How do you do it? We have coleslaw. I know what I'm making for dinner tonight, guys. I don't. I can't. It's a good thing we're not talking about the manna today. Oh, man. Maybe I'll make some manicotti. I have no idea. Yeah, or some banana manna or bread or something like that. Hello and welcome to another Wandering Through the Desert episode of On the Journey. I know some of our material can be a little bit dry, but hopefully we will get you to the promised land in less than 40 years as we continue our series on turning from idols to serve the living God. I'm Matt Swaim, uh, Director of Outreach Outreach for the Coming Home Network. Ken Hensley, my colleague, former Baptist pastor, who's Director of Pastoral Care. Kenny Burchard, Director of Development. He used to pastor in Foursquare Church. And we're all here uh, talking about various things that we do um, that hopefully explain why it is that we all ended up Catholic. If you want to find more episodes of the series that we do here, you can go to chnetwork.org. You can also join our online community full of all kinds of people who are asking various questions about these things. We're in there interacting as well. And I have something special for you. If you go and donate to make this show possible by going to chnetwork.org compass and then enter the code OTJ3141 at checkout, as it were, We'll send you a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved, which is thematically tied to what we're talking about here, which is what it means to turn from idols and serve the living God. So, Ken Hensley, you've been the man driving this conversation this time around. Where do you want to start us off today? What was that code again? OTJ3141. I'm sure there's a deep symbolic like numerological significance to why it's OTJ3141, but that's known only to Kenny. Okay. Okay. It's all just right. A I'll launch out. Number. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll launch out. But I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous now because my wife used to say to me when I preached, I, I would always preach series through various books of the Bible, and I always wanted to recap where we had gone every time so that people were with me. And she was, she'd say to me from time, time to time, you know, you cannot recap so much. You got to just launch in. So anyway, I'm feeling a little nervous because I'm going to recap here. Okay. But I want to recap the series because I believe, you know, repetition, 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 right? It's the heart of education, the, the heart of learning. Okay, when we address the doctrine of sanctification, that's what this series is all about that we work on. What we're addressing is a process. We're addressing the process by which you and I, as believers in Christ, are conformed to his image. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, from one degree of glory to another. I love that phrase, beautiful. And he says it's the work of the Spirit that does that. Our our tendency as children of Adam is to take the desire that we naturally have for God. And we do. A natural desire implanted in us for God because God made us for himself. 
and made us to seek and to find our deepest happiness in him. Our tendency, though, is to take that desire and attach it to something else. Um, you know, God fades away from our minds. We attach that desire to some created thing. We trust in idols. That's why the title of the series, Turning from Idols to Serve the Living God. And we wind up following idols, obeying idols, loving idols, uh, serving idols. And in the end, we wind up enslaved to them, in bondage to them. The, pro the only problem is they cannot bring us <laughs> the happiness we seek and that God created us to find in him. In his book on the theology of St. John of the Cross, titled The Ascent to Truth, Thomas Merton describes this reality so well that I just wanted to read it again, even though we read this a few, few episodes back. The earthly desires men cherish are shadows. There is no true happiness in fulfilling them. Why then do we continue to pursue joys without substance? Because the pursuit itself has become our only substitute for joy. Unable to rest in anything we achieve, we determine to forget our discontent in a ceaseless quest for new satisfactions. It is not enough to say that the man who is attracted to this world has bound himself to it once and for all by a wrong choice, as though we at some point in our lives just made one formal final choice to attach ourselves to the world. No, he says, quoting again from Merton. This man, and this applies to us, he spins a whole net of falsities around his spirit by the repeated consecration of his life to values that do not exist. He exhausts himself in the pursuit of mirages that ever fade and are renewed as fast as they have faded, drawing him further and further into the wilderness where he must die of thirst. Amazingly wonderful, gorgeous in some ways, description of something very terrible and something I am very familiar with in my own life. Okay, God forgives, of course, our idolatry. God forgives us. But the question of sanctification is, how can we be changed from the inside so that we actually become the kind of people who trust in Christ and follow him and obey him rather than our idols and in that process are changed into his likeness? This is what the doctrine of sanctification is all about. Agree? Disagree? Anything, I agree. Gentlemen? I just want to keep on pointing out that you keep on using this word process, right? Or becoming and all these sorts of things, which again, uh, for Kenny and I in our Wesleyan Arminian tradition, we'd have said, of course. Uh, but for people who come from once saved, always saved backgrounds, or maybe uh, hold firmly to the doctrine of election and not, don't necessarily believe in free will, these, these are may, you know, be the kinds of terms and, and you know, ideas yeah, sometimes that, that rub them the wrong way. Sometimes yeah. the idea of process is played down dramatically. You're right on that. Okay, so we're looking at the process. And we've gone through three steps so far, and I'm going to rehearse them quickly. What do we do then? How does this process work? What do we do to actually begin to be changed? And step one is prayer. Sanctification begins, and I would have to say it ends with prayer. Prayer is the foundation. Now, we've been using the pattern of the story of the Exodus of the children of Israel under Moses um, as well, as our pattern, as, t a, a, as a type of the steps that we take spiritually in our growth. And um, it begins with prayer. Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said when Moses met the Lord at the burning bush, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard them crying out because of their taskmasters. I am concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. Okay, deliverance, we noted, for the Israelites from bondage in Egypt began with prayer. It began, it began when they began to cry out to God in their bondage. And it's the same for you and me. That's step one. Deliverance from whatever it is, and I'll say it like this, whatever is keeping us from finding our deepest satisfaction in God and becoming the person God created us to be, whatever it is, deliverance from it begins when we become tired enough of our slave master that we begin to cry out to God. And this is basic. We even see this in Alcoholics Anonymous, where the, where the first several steps of the 12 steps read like this. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol in that case, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to be aware that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That's step one, is to cry out to God, to pray. Step two, we consciously put our trust in God and we need to do whatever it is God's calling us to do. We trust in God and we step out. After all, what came next for the Israelites after they cried out to God? Well, it was the Passover where they stepped out in faith. They trusted what Moses told them. They put their trust in God and they did what God instructed them to do. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. They put the blood over the doorposts of their homes. They roasted the Passover lamb. They sat at their table and they ate it and they walked out of Egypt. They trusted God and they did. And again, it's the same for you and me. We want to be delivered. It begins with prayer, but then we have to do what God is calling us to do. As it were, we celebrate the new covenant Passover, the new covenant Passover. We spread the blood of the Lamb of God, Christ the Lord, over the doorposts of our lives, our hearts. We eat the Lamb. We'll come back to this in the next episode when we talk about word and sacrament. And then we walk out of Egypt. And I mean, that's basic, but that's really striking to me that we have to walk. We leave our lives as slaves behind. In other words, we have to say no to our idol. We have to say no. Now, we may wind up, in fact, I would. I surmise that we will come back again and again and again to confession, bringing the same things to our Lord again and again. But there has to be what we Catholics refer to as a firm purpose of amendment. This is part of a valid confession, is to come in with a firm purpose to amend. And in other words, in other words, we cannot say, Lord, I trust you. I'm praying. Please deliver me. And okay, I trust you. And, but I'm, but I'm not. No, we have to do, we have to try, and we have to have a firm purpose of amendment. Even if we end up going back to confession a thousand times over the same issue, our intention must be to turn from the idol we've come to serve. Because it's in this struggle, we're going to talk about this more later on, it's in this struggle that we're changed this is how we become more like him. So we have to fight the fight. We have to strive after holiness. We have to walk out of Egypt. I was just going to ask you, Kenny, uh, did you ever use the word backslide in terminology uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. in your sermons? Yeah. Because this is exactly what you're sure. referring to. And it was, a, it was a piece of what we, like I say, Kenny and I would have believed in the Arminian and holiness tradition. Yeah, I mean, in sure. our in our 
Foursquare tradition, <clears throat> in the Foursquare tradition, which is Pentecostal, which is really rooted in in um, Wesleyan Arminian theology about these things, one of the things that we would say in our doctrinal discourse is that a person can apostatize from their faith and be lost. And that means that they really were a Christian, and then they, through their action and decision, decided not to be one anymore. Like, we, we really believed that. And can I also like what you you said there about the reality that we're going to have to go through this process multiple times, that we'll have to go to confession more than once. And in in truth, the New Testament sets up that reality for us, that point of tension for us. For instance, in First John chapter 1, you get this kind of back and forth from, from John where he says, well, I write these things that you may not sin. Okay. Oh, but if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar, but you shouldn't sin because if you do, you don't know God. But if you do, then you need to confess your sins because God will be faithful, yeah. but don't sin. Yeah. And so you feel, you feel this really this back and forth. And it's because that is the reality of the process of transformation and sanctification that we're going through. There's God's ideal, what he expects mm-hmm. and wants from us, our vocation, and then there is our working that out through the process of the of the battle. Yeah, and you're reminding me, especially of First John chapter two, where he says, "My my children, I write to you so that you will not sin." That, that that's what I want. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, right. the righteous. You're yeah, right. beautiful, beautiful to bring that in. Yeah, is exactly right. And you know, back to Alcoholics Anonymous. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you can't come in and say, okay, I give my life over to the Lord and I'm just going to keep drinking. You know, you can't just announce that. You have to stop. And then, yeah, if you fall, you start again. You fall, you start again. You fall, you start again. But you can't just say, you can't just say, I've handed my life over to God and I'm going to keep drinking. That's my plan. My plan is just to keep drinking. No, there has to be a firm purpose. You have to walk out of Egypt. The Moses and the Israelites, they couldn't sit there and spread the blood and eat the meat and then say, well, I'm not walking. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. You have to walk. You have to go. Okay, which leads Amen. us to step three, which leads to step three, which is, this is the one we covered in our last episode. We need to concentrate our minds. And I, I, I use those words intentionally. Concentrate our minds on a truth. The truth that in our baptism, God changed us. The power of sin at some fundamental level was broken in our lives such that we no longer have to serve sin. We may have had to serve sin before. We no longer have to. What came next for Moses and the Israelites after they prayed, after they celebrated the Lord's Supper, I mean, after they celebrated the Passover, it's the crossing of the Red Sea. That's what comes next in the story. And as we mentioned last week, in the crossing of the Red Sea, a dramatic an irrevocable break is made between their former lives as slaves in bondage in Egypt and their lives now. Pharaoh and his horsemen have been swallowed up by the sea and they're walking forth in freedom. And St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that this was their baptism. And again, it's the same for us. We pray, step one, to be delivered. We walk out of Egypt, step two, And then step three, we trust that in our baptism, a dramatic and irrevocable break was made with our former lives. We have to trust this. We were given the grace of deliverance. 
we now have the ability, not our ability, but we have the ability by God's grace and the Spirit working within us to walk in newness of life. And it's easy to not believe this. Again, I, I speak from I speak from experience. It's easy to forget this and not believe this. It's easy to think, no, I am a slave. I cannot part with whatever I am a, you know, attached to. I can't. And so I want you to remember one more time, Romans chapter six, where Paul says this, and I've just scooped out a few phrases. He says, we were buried, therefore, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he's not talking about when we get to heaven. He's talking about now. We know that our old self was crucified with him in our baptism so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Whatever God has done, Paul is saying, okay, it may be mysterious, it's very deep. Whatever God has done in us, the practical upshot is let not sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Okay, there are the first three steps and we're going to move forward today, but I give you guys a chance if you have anything to throw in there. Yeah, I, I think I would like to just <clears throat> kind of share a quick reflection, Ken and Matt, on something that I woke up to when I was in my New Testament program uh, in seminary. And many of the preachers that I listened to during my early years, people that were important to me, who helped shape my understanding of the things um, that I believed, were very different from my, my Pentecostal, Wesleyan, Arminian convictions. They would, they would say things like, well, we have this position, and it's, it's really our position um, in Christ that's everything. And there, there was almost kind of a diminishment of our actions and our, um, as we say as Catholics, our cooperation with God's grace. And when I was going through Paul's letters, Paul, who many of the Reformed folks say really is emphasizing position, 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 I continued to see with, with fresh eyes language about transformation, that we're changed, that, that it isn't just our position or our status that has been changed, but it, our actual real life has been changed, and how integral baptism is to that. And uh, I, I just think of uh, texts like um, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, which uh, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I, I remember reading that when I was going through uh, this letter in seminary and saying, wow, Paul is really not just focused on our position. Paul is really focused on the reality of this call to a transformed life. And why shouldn't he be? He is thoroughly soaked in the Old Testament scriptures and God's saving actions in history that follow this pattern that you've been laying out for us. So it doesn't, it doesn't change when we become Christians that our lives have to change. Uh, rather, we enter into the fullness of what's possible by following Jesus. That's, that's the big difference. Amen. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we're facing it. What is it that we're bound to? 
How do we get out? Well, we need to pray. We need to be, be, begin to cry out to God. If, if we're not praying, it means we're not ready. We haven't hit rock bottom yet, as they say. Secondly, we have to walk out of Egypt. We have to have a firm purpose of amendment. We go to the confessional, we confess it, we walk out of Egypt. Thirdly, we keep it clear in our minds. Lord, even though I still feel like I, I can't, I believe what you say, that in my baptism, you took the heart of stone out of me. I'm thinking about Ezekiel chapter 36, and you replaced it with a heart of flesh. You put your spirit in me to cause me to walk in your ways. You have changed me. And then what is step four then? What is step four? Well, I'll put it this way. What happened next in the Israelites story? Because that's what we're doing. We're following the story of the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt and deliverance to the promised land. Well, here's what happened next. God led his people into the desert. Exodus 13, verses 20 through 22. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now, we all know where the story goes, and we all know that in the end, the Israelites spend 40 years traveling through the desert, the wilderness, before they come to the Jordan River to cross into the land of promise. And the point I want to emphasize is this, that I want us to sit on for a while. The Israelites didn't simply stumble into the desert after crossing the Red Sea. I mean, it's not like they crossed the Red Sea and then they said, hey, well, we could go this way or we could go that way. Let, let's go into the desert for a while. No, it, it's very clear God led them into the desert. He led them into the desert in order to be tried and to be tested. The pillar of cloud went before them by day, the pillar of fire at night, and they were following. They were led into a desert, and this begins almost immediately. And this is where the story becomes almost humorous, except the fact that we can see it in our own lives so clearly. Okay, the story starts out beautifully. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites cross the Red Sea, a great miracle. In Exodus chapter 15, in the next chapter, we hear the song of Moses. And the Israelites are singing to the Lord after this great deliverance through the Red Sea. Hear the word, sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 15 of Exodus, Miriam, the sister of Aaron, he leads a group, I mean, she leads a group of women who are dancing, playing tambourines and singing this song. Okay, you get this image of a total celebration. God has led us through the Red Sea. They're singing, they're beating their tambourines. They're having the greatest time on earth. Everything appears to be going wonderfully. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. You know, you can imagine it. Thank God Almighty. We're free at last. And then, listen, guys, three verses later, okay? Three verses later, we read these words. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And then within 10 verses, no kidding, I, I counted them so that I, could, so that I could really see what's happened. Within 10 verses, 10 verses later, this is what we read. In the desert, 
the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Just cracked. If only we had died. There we sat around pots of meat and all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They enter the desert, you guys, and they're singing, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And within moments, it seems, they're begging Moses to let them go back into slavery. After all, they reason, or at least on an emotional level, they're reasoning, Egypt may have been bad, we may have been slaves, but at least it was something we were used to, you know? At least we had food and drink. We had the melons, we had the leeks, all these things that are listed in other passages. Now we have freedom. Thanks a lot, Moses. Great. Now we're free. But but look around. Look where we are. We're in the desert. It's dry. It's barren. And now it seems like we're going to die. It seems like we're going to starve to death. The only problem is the path to the land that flows with milk and honey just happened to be a path that ran directly through the desert. And this is why the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, this is why God was leading them through the desert. And again, it's the same for you and I. We pray, we step out in faith to do what God wants us to do. We trust that in our baptism, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then fortified by this, sorry to tell you, but it's into the desert we go. You know, what's funny is that you've got the, the going into the desert after you cross the Red Sea, but it's easy to miss that they go into the desert before they cross the Red Sea. <laughs> so there's this interesting passage, um, and, you know, I don't even know how to unpack all the theological implications of it, but you mentioned, you know, in Exodus 13, Pharaoh lets the people go. Um, God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, although that was shorter. Um mm-hmm. God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt, you know, the short way. Um, so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Uh, and that's when they show up and suck at the, And it's, it's you know, not like a short journey at all. You know, when you watch the Ten Commandments, as we you know, have joked about a few times on here, it's like it happens in the course of like 12 hours. Like the Israelites go and Pharaoh's yeah. like, ah, it's been yeah. four hours. I've changed my mind. Uh, you know, and then you get the uh, the swirling, you know, ancient 1950s cgi pillar of fire that confuses the 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 egyptians but yeah it is interesting that there's even a desert road before they even get to the red sea to me i don't think there was cgi back then i think it's more like a gumby (laughs) it's more like gumby um, yeah swirling like stop motion stop motion by the way that that pillar of fire shows up around succoth i don't know if you know some of the interesting etymological history of succoth and like the food culture of that place do you know about this no no i don't so apparently, uh, Succoth was a town that was known for this, like, this famous like fried potato dish that they made there. Um, and apparently, it was a real pain, a real pain to make. Um, and so they called it the Suffering Succoth Hash. I don't know if you know about this. <laughs> no. no wonder I don't. No, know we're not going to Matt. We're not going to let your your son watch any of these episodes because he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna steal some of my uh, material. No, By the way, Kenny say, saw that oh, coming. I saw yeah, it on his yeah. face. He knew it was going to a bad place <laughs> fast. <laughs> Well, I it, it's good. It's good. <clears throat> we need a pun every once in a while, but we also need a journey story. And and um, I, I, you know, Ken, as you were going through all of that, I thought of two seasons of my life 
that so connect to what you just shared about what the Israelites went through. And the first was when I was 24 years old and I went on staff at the first church where I was ever, you know, in full-time ministry. It was an Assemblies of God church in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was my goal, you know, for years to, quote, go on staff at a church and be a pastor. And I, and I finally, you know, kind of reached that goal when I was 24 years old and um, was brought on to the team, went through, you know, the, the whole process that the church went through to bring me into ministry. And then, at, like, no sooner did that happen. In fact, I was getting a haircut, and the girl cutting my hair said, well, what do you do for a living? And I, for the first time in my life, when I was 24, I said, well, I'm I'm a pastor. I'm on staff at a church. And mm-hmm. I remember kind of looking in the mirror and freezing and thinking, okay, I just <laughs> said something for the first time. Well, in the days and weeks that followed, I went through hell. I mean, like more temptation than I'd ever faced in my life, more difficulty than I'd ever faced in my life. And I remember sharing this at a prayer meeting, like, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And some, an older, more mature Christian said, well, look what's happened to you. You've just stepped, you know, more deeply into your your ministry and your walk with the Lord than you ever have before. And that, you know, so that was kind of my first wake up call. But guys, it happened and it happened to me probably in some of the biggest moments of my my life where I would need to surge forward in my walk with the Lord, my obedience to the Lord, where I'd get strong pushback. And guys, it happened to me again two months after I came into full communion with the Catholic Church. I, My whole family went through the most difficult six months that we've ever oh. been through. I mean, we were we were crying. It was it, there was darkness in our lives, difficulty in our lives like we had never experienced before. And it was very painful. And I remember telling my um, my sponsor, his name's Bob, about it. And I said, I just don't understand. Like I, after communion, I would kneel and cry, you know, after communion because of the difficulty. And I was like, this is, but but I'm but I'm Catholic now. This is so great. But it was it was like hell. And my friend Bob said, Wow, somebody really hates it that you've become Catholic. <laughs> and I just kind of said, Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. And this yeah. this difficulty that we face, you know, the, the enemy hates it when we obey the Lord. But the Lord wants yeah. us to go through that and process it. So, well, see that the the the, the fantastic thing about what you just said is that well, well, number one, it leads exactly into what I wanted to say next. But there are yeah, there are some forms of of Christianity, of Protestant Christianity, that focus so strongly on the idea that, you know, it's as though Jesus walked the way of the cross so that we don't have to. Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. Um, And as you said, this intense focus on positional truth. In Christ, we are already raised and seated in heavenly places and therefore are almost allergic to the idea of transformation or certainly to the idea of our cooperation in transformation. Where If you were to say, what about that verse, strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse verse 14, that they begin to shake a little bit and get, you know, break out with hives at the idea of being told to strive. But what we have here in the story of the Israelites is they pray to God to be delivered. 
They smear the blood. They walk out of Egypt. They are baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And then God leads them into the, into the desert. And they're going to be there for 40 years, being tempted, being tried, being tested, being changed. And that's what God does to us. In fact, this idea of the desert, I, I'm sure some already noticed listening to what we're saying here today, but isn't this interesting that this is exactly the pattern we see in the life of the very one who said, follow me, <laughs> you know? And so when you say that, Kenny, and I see that pattern in your own life, well, it just, it just adds up and makes sense. Remember what happened when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan? First of all, the Spirit descends on him. The Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then we read, and I'm quoting Mark chapter 1, verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. The Israelites are baptized. The, uh, God refers to the Israelites as his firstborn son, you know, Israel, my people, my firstborn son, and they're driven out into the desert. That's exactly what happened in Jesus's life. Exactly. Yeah. And the catechism is such a, a wonderful and beautiful um, helper with this text uh, and with helping us to understand what's happening in our own lives as we learn how to follow Jesus. And if I can, Matt and Ken, I just want to read two paragraphs from the catechism that specifically speak about Please Jesus' do. temptation in the wilderness. So in paragraph 538, it says this, The Gospels speak of a time of solitude for Jesus in the desert immediately after his baptism by John, driven by the Spirit into the desert. Jesus remains there for 40 days without eating. He lives among the wild beasts, and angels minister to him. At the end of this time, Satan tempts him three times, seeking to compromise his filial attitude toward God. Jesus rebuffs these attacks, which recapitulate the temptations of Adam in paradise and of Israel in the desert. And the devil leaves him until an opportune time. And then the next paragraph, 539. The evangelists, that is the writers of the Gospels, indicate the salvific meaning of this mysterious event. Jesus is the new Adam who remained faithful just where the first Adam had given in to temptation. Jesus fulfills Israel's vocation perfectly in contrast to those who had once provoked God during 40 years in the desert. Christ reveals himself as God's servant, totally obedient to the divine will. In this, Jesus is the devil's conqueror. He binds the strong man to take back his plunder. Jesus' victory over the tempter in the desert anticipates victor, uh, victory at the passion, the supreme act of obedience of his filial love for the Father. Okay, let's take this image then, the image of Israel, the image of our Lord's life in this. And I, I want to make the first application by saying, by talking about how, how our Christian lives begin. This is how our Christian lives begin. We just celebrated Easter, obviously, and a number of the members of the Coming Home Network, a number of the people that we work with here at the Coming Home Network, were baptized 
were confirmed and were brought into full communion with the church. In fact, at one of our Fellowship Friday meetings just recently, um, some were sharing their excitement after having received baptism and confirmation when the Holy Spirit came upon them, empowering them to live lives of holiness. When the Father, as it were, spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, um, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Um, in the Easter liturgy, we even make professions of faith. I mean, maybe I'm loosely tying this together, but we even make our profession of faith again. And we say words that are similar to the song that the Israelites sang. I mean, they sang after crossing the Red Sea, sing to the Lord, he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider, he is cast into the sea. We are asked, do you renounce Satan? And we respond, I do. Yes, Pharaoh, Satan, buried in the waters of the Red Sea, we're moving forward. And many of the Catholics, uh, many Catholics will leave the Easter Vigil and Pentecost floating on air. And then immediately, immediately the Holy Spirit sends them, leads them, wasn't it drives them, in the paragraph you read from the Catechism, drives them into the desert. And so this is something I think so important for us to learn. This is God's pattern. When we're baptized, when all these wonderful things have happened, the pattern is not, now go lay in your hammock and enjoy heaven for a while and then die. No, the Lord leads us into the wilderness. For me, it's been 46 years now since I came to faith in Christ that I've been in the wilderness, being tempted, being tried, being tested. But you know what, guys? This is how we grow in, in our sanctification. This is how we grow. The desert is one of the, in fact, I would put it this way, the desert is one of the primary tools that God uses to transform us. And let me use an anal analogy to kind of get this out for, for discussion. But think, think of how we grow in strength when it comes to our bodies, okay? We join the local gym on, on January 2nd, <laughs> January 3rd. <laughs> we go and we join, we join the local gym. You know, we walk into the, into the gym looking either like Haystack Calhoun. He, he, he was a wrestler when I was a kid. He weighed like 700 pounds. Or like Barney Fife. And we want to turn this around. Okay, how do we turn it around? How does it happen? How would we become champ, champion athletes or weightlifters? Well, we have to start walking. We have to start running on the treadmill. We have to begin to lift weights that are at least slightly too hard for us to lift easily. Uh, you know, we have to suffer. We have to stretch ourselves. Our muscles have to be torn. They, they, they reconstitute themselves. In essence, it's suffering. It's work. We suffer. And in the process, little by little, we either become strong or we quit the gym and the next January we, we join again. But Little by little, we become strong. And this is how it happens in our spiritual lives as well. This is how we grow in faith and holiness. And when you think about it, I mean, again, it's, it's almost humorous when I think about how perfectly the pattern in my life has often fit the pattern that the Israelites experienced, you know, um, in the gym <laughs> as well as in my spiritual life. You know, you attempt to break some attachment, you know, okay, Matt, you're too attached to TV. I mean, it's not like Matt's confessed that to me. I'm just making this up, okay? Matt is so attached true, to electron. He, he's so attached to electronic media that he cannot break from looking at his phone all day long, 
looking at the internet all day. Oh, he's kind of turning red right now. I'm sorry, Matt. Watching sorry, the TV you're... all day this long. Is, this is a dagger and... into my soul. Okay, Matt is completely addicted to having information just coming at him and images and pictures all day long. Okay, when he attempts to try to break that attachment, he breaks it. He goes to confession. He breaks it. He walks out. And for like about two hours, maybe two days, he feels like a saint. Matt is floating on clouds of glory because he has put this thing to death. He's put it to bed. He goes out. He's walking down the street. He's singing, sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and his rider, he has dumped into the sea. And then he finds himself in the desert. And the bottom line, whether it's TV, whether it's pornography, some other sexual addiction, whether it's drink, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, especially if our addiction, our attachment is, is to something that has a physical, psychological kind of component to it. We may feel like saints for about two days, but soon we are going to be in the desert. We're going to be in the desert and we're going to begin to experience withdrawals. And that's the way I describe what, what Israel experienced in the desert. It was, it was withdrawals, classic withdrawals that led them to say, we are dying, Moses, please, please let us go back into slavery. And that's how we're going to feel. Matt is going to feel like he's dying of thirst, dying of hunger. And he's going to say, please, Lord, can I turn on the internet again? <laughs> can I turn on the TV show? There's a new series on Netflix. I have to watch it now. Matt, you may want to comment. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I have at this point in my life canceled Netflix, canceled Amazon Prime, canceled Disney Plus, and uh, I don't even watch wow. Cat Fails on YouTube. So I'm I'm doing actually fairly well in this area. So I don't mind the example, but it's so, it's so not I an easy pick thing. Out another area, you should have picked out. You know, I don't know, like kicking scanning Google for puns. I cannot I cannot break <laughs> the habit of kicking every puppy I see. Uh, you know what's what's interesting about this is that you know you've talked about the 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 these temptations these hitting you know once someone makes a firm purpose of amendment and breaks them and then is riding on air I've found that in and we know this also with our work with people at the Coming Home Network sometimes that'll hit you on your way to go fight these things <laughs> you know on the on the path to go break that attachment um, that's you know I was talking to a friend of mine um, about. You know, his wife was, you know, had finally after years of marriage decided she was going to come into the church and, you know, was having kind of some some struggles and difficulties and, you know, feeling a little bit lonely and discouraged on the journey and decided to take, you know, go to a, a, a Holy Thursday mass and her kids are being a little bit antsy and anxious. And at the end of it, somebody came up and said, hey, I just want to thank you for ruining Holy Thursday mass for me and everybody here because of the way your kids misbehave. And she's like, that's it. I'm not coming into the church the day after tomorrow, <laughs> right? Like there's discouragement oh, that, wow. that can hit from the inside as you're leading up yeah. from the first moment. I mean, we're talking to people right now and I could come up with at least three or four stories of people in our membership who they became Catholic and everything's great. And suddenly like everything is just kind of falling apart around them, uh, right? I mean, this is not a unique experience. Uh, yeah, this you know, is not I, you know, something I, that is new to people. You know, I'm glad you're bringing that up, Matt, because in this lesson, since we've been talking about, you know, our atta attaching our desire to God or attaching our desire to some created thing, I'm kind of focusing on the internal in this lesson. I was focusing on our internal temptations 
that we may feel glorious the second we know we come out and, you know, the horse and the rider. And then immediately we feel like we're starving to death and we're hungry. And, and, and the thing is, even though we know that the direction that we're headed is the right direction, you know, I, I just came out of confession. I made a firm purpose. I'm not going back to this, even though we may know that this is the, the path we're on is the path to uh, the, the land that flows with milk and honey. You know, we're going to begin to feel like we're starving to death. Okay. But my point is I, I chose to focus on the internal, but when, when, when Kenny was talking a moment ago, he was talking about how he had these beautiful times in his life where he made these big decisions and then things from the outside came in. And, and you're saying the same thing, you know, this woman mm-hmm. wants to join the church and she has this bad experience. I mean, Kenny, is that correct? You were talking yeah. about things happening in your life, right? Yeah. I mean, some of it's internal for sure. Um, you know, thing, the, the temptations to fall into sin and darkness, but, mm-hmm. but even more than that, things in my case, especially when we came into the church, things coming at us from the outside, deep, right. difficult, right. painful things. <clears throat> and, you know, right here, there might be people say, well, that's what you get. There's God's judgment on you for becoming Catholic. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. <laughs> to which I would answer with the words <laughs> of Peter um, uh, in his first letter, chapter four, he says, um, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And, you know, this goes back to a question that a Christian brother asked me years ago when I was talking to him about a season of suffering I was going through. He said, well, how much like Jesus do you want to be, Kenny? And, you know, that question mm. kind of comes to us in those in the moments where we're feeling good and we f- f- think being like Jesus means I'm a good guy who's nice to everyone, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or that I never sin or whatever. But what about how much like Jesus do you want to be in the suffering that Jesus went through? Because that's, that's what Peter is talking about here. If we suffer with him, then we will reign with him. So how much like Jesus do you really want to be? And man, what, a, what, what an important question. Yeah. And then you got to do all that discernment cross. too. You know, as you're talking about, you know, that that's what you get, you know, the classic Christian discernment dilemma, bad things are happening to me. Is this the devil attacking me because I'm doing the right thing? Or is it God closing a door? (laughs) Right? Which is this whole other kind of question. Or was I, or was I just an idiot? (laughs) That's usually option three. And that's, that's usually the door that I walk through. (laughs) Yeah. I remember this. um, I remember being in the home of a friend when I was about probably 21 years old and it was a Pentecostal family. Okay. Not the kind of Pentecostal you were, Kenny, okay? The other kind. And I remember we were in the living room and I heard his mother yelling from the kitchen and she was charging the devil with having burned her hot dogs. (laughs) The the devil was burning her hot dogs. So sometimes we just (laughs) can blame everything, right? Okay, look, let me bring this together though because (laughs) the point that we're making here, whether it's internal stuff or whether it's external stuff, Jesus said, take up your, if you will not take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And so the point I want to make is this, it is the Holy Spirit that led the children of Israel into the desert after the Red Sea. 
it's the Holy Spirit that led that immediately led Jesus into the into the wilderness to be tempted after his baptism. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us into the desert. And we not only need to accept the reality of the desert, I would say in our lives, we we need to go a step forward, uh, a step further. We need to embrace the reality of the desert. And the reason is this, the desert is the only route through to the promised land. There is no route that is, you know, more, more like jumping on a carnival cruise line and it's cruising to the, you know, like, like instead of going into the desert, they went back up to the land of Goshen or to Alexandria and they jumped on a cruise ship and they just rode the cruise ship up to the land of Canaan or something. No, the route to the land of promise is the route of the desert. Put it another way. The only way through to the land flowing with milk and honey is for us to experience the withdrawals from our attachments, our addictions, our idols, for us to experience the loss. And, and, and there is loss involved because even though these idols, you guys, I mean, even though they were, they, they were never anything more than broken cisterns that could hold no water, they weren't what we really want. They weren't God. And we have to find, and our happiness, we're, we're made to find our happiness in God, even though they weren't, they they at least masked sometimes our pain and they provide kind of a temporary relief of one kind or another. You know, they, they give us some little level of joy, some level of happiness and there. And that's why we become addicted to them. And so here's the thing. The only way for that addiction to be broken, the only way for that attachment to be severed is to experience the withdrawals in the desert, to walk through that and make it through because this is how we're changed on the inside. I mean, suffering is one of the primary ways in which we are sanctified. And we're going to come back to this topic in spades when we talk about purgatory about three or four episodes from now. But this is where it starts. You know, it, it's not like this life is a joy it is a joy cruise and then purgatory to finally purge us. No, it, it begins now. The desert begins right away. So we're going to come back to this, but for now, it's critical that we understand that trial, testing, suffering is one of the primary ways that we are sanctified. So we need to learn to embrace it. We pray to God. We trust him. We make a firm purpose of amendment. We walk up. We walk out from Egypt. We remember Romans 6, that in our baptism, God changed us from the inside, and we have the ability, and then we face the desert, and we have to go through it to the other side. Okay, anything more on this subject before we kind of change uh, near the end here to one more angle on this subject? Okay. I mean, I just I, I find it interesting that that with uh, this question something of about succotash, things, it's not going to be about succotash, uh, but okay. <laughs> the idea of getting these things that we know, I think, that will not satisfy. You know, I was, I'm just fascinated by how Thomas Aquinas like unpacks these things, and you know, the what can happiness be? be found in and he says well let's think about what people try to find happiness in there's fame there's wealth there's power there's goods of the body bodily pleasures and he goes to see like why none of those could be the case wealth can't be the ultimate thing that you want because you're only using it to buy something else right (laughs) or you know um even something like power can't be the ultimate good because some people use power well and some people use it for awful things so that can't be that i mean and but you know what is it that we always chase it's all these things that like 
if you were to take a second and think about it, you realize money isn't the thing, right? I'm just using that to buy other stuff. If I have money, what am I going to do? Stockpile it and look at it and be like, this is amazing. No, I'm going to use it for something else. And yet, all these false idols just continue to draw, even though if we were to take like two seconds and think about it, we'd realize that our happiness could never consist in those things. Right. And and he just takes this approach of logically showing how and why that's the case. Yeah. You know, it's funny, in that passage from Pascal that we read in our first episode, he's, he's listing some of the things that people trust in, and he includes cabbages. <laughs> Don't ask me. He's just making this long laundry list of things that people put their hope in, and ca- apparently cabbages is one that came to his mind. But anyway. Pascal, okay. wait. Pascal put hope in cabbages? That's not Pascal's law, man. That's Cole's law. <laughs> um, okay. We got <laughs> How do you do episode. it? How do you do it? We have Cole's law. I know what I'm making for dinner tonight, guys. I don't. So. I can't. <laughs> it's a good thing we're not talking about the manna today. Oh, man. Maybe I'll make some manicotti. I have no idea. Yeah, or some banana manna or bread or something like that. Okay, listen. Before wrapping up, or as we wrap up the discussion, I want to point out just another side to this biblical image of the desert that I think is worth thinking about and, men- and mentioning. And, and it's this. We've talked about the desert as the place of testing, temptation, the difficulty. But interesting, historically, whenever men and women of God have really wanted to detach themselves from this world and seek the face of God, they've gone to the desert. I mean, there are are all these biblical characters. You know, Moses, of course, becomes the man that he needs to be tending flocks in the desert. Same with David tending flocks. We have Elijah, we have Elisha, we have John the Baptist who were all out in the wilderness. Our Lord, we read, often went into the wilderness to the desert alone to pray. St. Paul, after his conversion, goes into Arabia for three years before he comes back. But St. Anthony of the desert, one of the first, you know, really famous monks of Christian history, um, he's referred to as the first of the desert fathers. So he went out to seek the face of God in solitude. And and the thing is, down to our day, there's been this pattern of uh, people going into the desert to find God. And as a part of my story was a Benedictine abbey uh, called St. Andrew's Abbey, a Benedictine monastery, which happens to be in the high desert here a couple of hours from my home outside of L.A. Um, I I used to visit this place. I I did for years and years when I was a Protestant, when I was a Protestant pastor, and I still go there from time to time. And, And I do think this. I mean, I've been to monasteries and forests. I've been to monasteries in different places. But I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking there's something about the desert that is seems to be the perfect place to seek God. And I think the reason is this. I think that it's in the desert, the bleak desert, that we catch a glimpse of just how vast our need is for God, how thirsty and how hungry we are. I think that it's the emptiness of the desert in a way that can remind us of the infinite abyss that Pascal talked about that can only be filled by God. Whereas in the city, we can distract ourselves from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed. We can distract ourselves with all those things that you have you have eliminated your subscriptions over, Matt. Very proud of you for that. But, you know, words, images, sounds, noise, movement. In the city, we can distract ourselves from the second we wake up until the second we go to bed. And it's in silence. That's why monasteries are always 
in silent places, whether it's in the forest, whether it's up in the mountains, but I think in a special way in the desert, we face ourselves. You go to the desert and you don't bring any, uh, any sounds with you, no music, no sound, no anything. Don't bring a book to read. Don't bring anything with you. Don't bring a guitar to play. Don't bring anything. And you sit out in the desert for about three hours and you will begin to catch a glimpse, a serious glimpse of just how vast your need is, how infinite the abyss within really is that needs to be filled by God and that maybe you've been filling it with other things. I think we begin to get in touch with that desire that the catechism talks about and that we've read several times where it says the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. God never ceases to draw a man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. In the desert, the desert is the place where we can begin to experience the withdrawals that we have to experience if we're going to detach ourselves from our idols and we're going to live for God. And just saying these words again, it kind of makes me want to go out into the, I, I would like to try that out again. I'd like to go out to the desert with nothing spend three or four days out there and see what happens, you know, when you really face yourself, you face you and God with no distraction in between. This is where we can get a sense and maybe begin to reach out to God um, for what we want, what we need. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll conclude with that. I'll, I'll say this and then toss it to, to Matt um, at the end here. You know, when <clears throat> I became a Catholic, um, I looked at things like this, differently than I ever had before. And even things like disciplines. So for instance, pastorally, our bishops and our pastors, uh, they write into the rhythm of life things like fasting on certain days and praying on certain days and you know going to things that are called obligations. And from the outside, it can look like, well, there's a whole pile of legalism that you're trapped in here. Um, but biblically speaking, no, this is pastoral guidance to shape a holy people. Because in my life, God is going to ask me to do hard things. He's certainly going to ask me to do harder things than giving up meat on Fridays. And so I can at least learn how to say uh, no to something on one hand and yes to God on the other by doing something as simple as following the pastoral guidance of the bishops and of our of our pastors and doing those things that are sewn into Catholic life, right? Guys, I mean, we, we're, we're yes. exhorted to these obligations. And it's because of the kind of people that God is shaping in us, Jesus-looking people, cruciform people, um, people who are in the unatoming process of following Jesus. And so we shouldn't see these things, fasting, uh, prayer, suffering, wilderness, you know, intentionally uh, afflicting ourselves in that sense as, as bad things or legalistic things, but rather as things that are making us more like Jesus in very practical ways. So in that regard, I would say um, our, our Catholic faith offers us so much in terms of how to be shaped into the holy Jesus following people that God's called us to be. And let me say, I would insist at this point that Seth ring the bells on that comment you just made. All right. Now, <clears throat> I mean, now you won't do yeah. it. Now you won't do I'm it. I'm creating. No, I'm creating. I'm creating the space. 
that might be the first to ring. That might be the first bell ringing that's ever happened for for me since I joined you. For guys. Kenny, yeah, I used to get bells all the time. I don't know what's happening. Well, you know what? I I think it's mainly. I would have to say it's mainly because we've just forgotten that thing. We, we've forgotten to mention it and and so forth. I noticed it again. No, no, no. I, let me I, it's just for just for you know just to the so bells, the shiny. bells. I need to I need to earn a bell here. You guys ready? Water <laughs> is wet. <laughs> okay, now we can move on. <laughs> So, uh, concluding we've comment. got more to discuss, you know, but I figure we could probably wrap it up here, you know. So, uh, just want to remind people of a few things. If you want to follow this discussion, in case Kenny's, or Ken's recap at the beginning of the episode wasn't enough of you hunger for more, you can go back and find previous episodes of On the Journey uh, by going to chnetwork.org. We also have an online community, and all of us hang out there. Uh, we, you know, love to be in exchanges. We even have, like, a Friday Fellowship Zoom chat uh, where our members participate and kind of share where they are on their journey. That's community.chnetwork.org. We would very much love to see you in there as well. And just a reminder that these episodes and all the materials that we provide to people for, through the Coming Home Network, uh, you know, we're able to provide so many of them for free because of generous supporters. And if you want to join that team of people who are trying to make these resources free to others, go to chnetwork.org compass. If you enter the code OTJ3141, when you make that monthly gift, because uh, we encourage people to do monthly gifts, uh, then we'll send you a copy of Marcus Grody's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Uh, it's a book that, you know, really talks about the kind of stuff that we're discussing in this series of, of On the Journey. So again, uh, we're really looking for some monthly donors so that we can kind of keep the stream steady. So that's chnetwork.org slash compass and enter the code OTJ3141 to get What Must I Great. Do to Be Saved by Marcus Grody. So... It's a good book. It's short, pithy. <laughs> it is good. It's good stuff. All right, gentlemen, thank you yep. again. All right. It's been a good, good time. Good to be with you again, Ken guys. Hensley, do this again. And I promise I will not week. recap. I refuse to recap in the next All right. episode. We will hold you to that. We are your All right. digital accountability partners. Okay. Until All next right, time. See you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.